So it is the recorder of man's deeds, the keeper of his conscience, the courier of his news, that we look for strength and assistance, confident that with your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. In your heart, you know he's right. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. This is Liberty in Exile with your host, Yael Osofsky. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bring you liberty, not destroy it. The evil that governments do lives after them. The good is oft interred their bones, so let it be with liberty in exile. Hello and welcome to the program here on the 30th day of September in the year 2013. I am your host, Yael Usovsky, broadcasting to you from the Sovereign Southern Studio here in North Carolina. We are broadcasting on the Liberty Radio Network, as well as the No Agenda Stream. And for this episode, we do have a special guest, so let us get to it. And on the line with me, I have Mr. Fergus Hodgson. Mr. Fergus Hodgson is the stateless man, but he is also... Editor-in-Chief of the brand-new website, Pan Am Post. Fergus, I've had you on as a guest many times before, so I do thank you once again for coming on again. Well, it's always my pleasure, Yale, and I was just thinking, it's been too long. I can't really remember the last time we spoke. Maybe it was last year. I'm not sure. Yeah, well, no, it hasn't been that long. I think we did a show just a few months ago, but uh, we've been kind of tied down, very busy with projects in our own lives, so I'm glad we could finally have you on and talk about your new project. Mm. Uh, normally, when we talk, we're talking on the, the basis of your radio show and website, thestatelessman.com. But now there's this new giant rising from the sea known as Pan Am Post. Right. Now, for, for listeners who are on the Liberty Radio Network as well as the No Agenda Stream, tell us a little bit about what Pan Am Post is, where the idea was conceived, how it was conceived, and really your vision for how it will grow in the future. Right. Well, the, the, there are lots of ways to answer that question, but... The, the short answer is that it's a new media outlet that spans the continent, the, all of the Americas, and it's multilingual. So we have uh, English is the dominant language, but we have Spanish and French, and we're looking to expand into some Portuguese as well. Uh, and we, we target issues which we believe are getting a lack of coverage, but are particularly of concern to people who are liberty conscious, you could say, civil liberties, uh, property rights, privacy, whatever it may be. And particularly areas which we think have, have not been given enough attention given censorship or constraints on the media uh, that exist, particularly in, in Latin America where there's a concern about a lack of media independence. The longer-term goal or idea has been in the works for years. The publisher and owner of the operation contacted me to lead it. He had been thinking about it for a while, and he just came into. Uh, contact with my radio show and website and thought that I'd be a fitting person to handle it. And I said, it would be my pleasure. Uh, It has been a challenge. But I believe we don't have a competitor uh, that's doing what we're doing. 
and therefore we have a market that we're seeking to fill. And the challenge right now is basically to make people who would appreciate our content know about us, right? If you, We've only been around two, two and a half months, so we're really new. And even if we have great content, a lot of people have not heard of us yet. So I'm just getting out there and seeking to expand, expand our awareness as much as I can. Yeah, and you've had pretty good uh, presence on the social media. You have a very good name, I think, to throw out there, Pan Am Post. I mean, it sounds like a newspaper that used to exist in 1829, and <laughs> it's like the, the, I don't know, the original publisher's great-grandson picks it up and starts reprinting with a determined mission to talk about the news from the tip of, what is it, uh, Chile, Argentina, all the way sure. to the top of Canada. It sounds great. Yeah. Yeah, well, one, I should. I just want to. I want to jump in there. The name Pan American does have an important significance. That the term Pan American or Pan Americanism has gone from vocabularies or from the from the normal parlance. The idea is basically a more united uh, continent, uh, but as you know, it's very fragmented. And I guess we are part of a push or a hope that there can be much more streamlined and positive uh, relationships across the continent. And do you think that there is such a difference that would make it to where if I were to write articles, let's say, from a European perspective uh, versus, let's say, an American perspective or a South American perspective in a place like Venezuela mm. or uh, even Brazil, I mean, would you say that the what binds... The Americas is necessarily ideas? Is it more just a location, or is it like a common strand of how they were, f- how nations were founded, and, and therefore sort of their press in this day and age? That, that's a really difficult question, Yale. I mean, we could say that the, the Americas, it is the quote, new world, and so it's been a haven for people sort of fleeing the old world. But there are so many uh, differences across the continent, and I'm still learning the history of the continent. I'm reading an excellent book right now uh, called uh, The Latin Americans and Their Love-Hate Relationship with the United States, which discusses that dis- very disparity between, you could say, the, the Spanish-speaking America and the Anglo-America. And so the act- it actually has been quite a... Di- so, yeah, so th- there is this, you could say, escape route uh, leading to the Americas, from the old world. However, the people who colonized and the people who are already here, you know, from going further back, uh, were very different uh, groups of people. And those disparities remain to this day. And those disparities are in the ideas world, too. We discuss that all the time, actually, why particular parts of Latin America, for example, are just um, way behind in terms of development and why Anglo-America is just so much wealthier and the rest of the continent, uh, there are a lot. You know, there are lots of different answers to those questions, and I'm learning all the time. I don't claim to be an expert in Latin American history or in ideology. I have travelled through Latin America many times, and I'm going to continue to do so. But that's uh, not necessarily my specialty. And yeah, like, like I said, it's an ongoing process. I will and I had a question about. There's a, an article that I want to point listeners to. It, it is on. Our show notes at libertyinexile.com. It is uh, private property and federalism up for debate in Venezuela. Mm. And this is an article by your reporter, Charlotte Sosa. Is that correct? Oh, correct. I'm sorry. Yeah, Charlotte. Charlotte. It's a, a funny way of spelling Charlotte, but yeah. 
Okay, Charlotte Sosa. And talking about, uh, I guess there's a, a new bill coming up. Mm. And it's talking about land use planning and management and all. And I've, I've read through the history of, of uh, Latin America. I had to do a few courses when I was in school. And the big theme in all of the Latin American countries, pretty much at the beginning of the 1900s on or probably from the 1860s on, was always about land reform. Mm. How do you take away land from these rich white guys and give it and split it up amongst the people? And that's sort of the... The argument and the, what Che Guevara, Ernesto Guevara, was pushing for, the Argentinian right. who became a so-called freedom fighter throughout uh, Cuba and also tried to, to spread the same type of revolution all throughout South yeah. America. So I have to wonder, you know, does it seem like this is the constant tale in South America? Is like they're still coming to grips with ways to take land from people who have it and give it to those who don't have it? That's just... Obviously, it is a it is a consistent tale, and it's a very unfortunate one. And there, there's a good reason why that is the case. That uh, the the class structure throughout Latin America has been just much stronger than what exists in the United States and Canada. And the U.S. does have a legacy of slavery, uh, unfortunately, which is really terrible. And it, that legacy is a, is a detriment to the nation to this day. It gets in the way. Of progress, but that legacy in Latin America, firstly, it's still much stronger to this to this very day. But going back, there was just a much heightened awareness of class structure and of racial privilege, and naturally that breeds resentment. So when you have resentment combined with, unfortunately. This is just the case, you know, throughout many people who are poor, what might be what might be called economic illiteracy or a lack of um, good quality education. When you combine those two together, you get almost like a vengeance or a um, a seeking of some sort of uh, justice, which is misguided. And it reminds me a lot of you know this from the book The Law by Bastier, where he says that. Often we'll have a case where we, ha- where we have a revolution, but rather than a revolution that turns to a, an end to uh, robbery or legalized plunder, it's just a switching of places that the other people become the plunderers. And that's precisely what is happening in Venezuela right now, where the people who are now politically connected are becoming, uh, I'm not sure whether billionaires is, is, is correct, but basically there's a term for them and it it, I, it fails me right now, but basically there's a term describing this new new generation of very wealthy people who are just politically connected, and it's really unfortunate. And I, it it is a collect a problem of collectivism, and we talk about this all the time on the site too, where this mentality, which again I think stems from the racism and class structure of the past, and unfortunately which still exists somewhat to the, to this day in Latin America. Uh, I think that, yeah, that that collectivist notion of us versus them or this class versus one of the class really gets in the way of progress and makes that, that story, that narrative that you just mentioned, so consistent and uh, it resonates. I, yeah, so, <laughs> so you... Uh, so you, I, well, I have to ask, you are a native uh, New Zealander, a correct. New Zealand man, yeah. a Kiwi, as you've told me. 
Um, and that does not just mean that you use odd English terms that I don't know, but it also mm. means that you have a completely different perspective. You're coming from really the cornerstone of the British Empire. <laughs> so I have to ask, in your experience, why are you so interested in Latin America? Why are you so interested in trying to understand a culture mm. and a language that really growing up where you did, <laughs> that, there was nothing like that close to it? Lots of reasons. I mean, the whole uh, British ancestry of New Zealand is an interesting topic in and of itself uh, because in many ways England and it gets complicated as to how you define the British Isles but isn't really the England of old so many people will say that New Zealand is more British than Britain because we have the, the British people who arrived before England changed so much right uh, but it is extremely different from Latin America uh, and we could discuss, you know, the different ways that it, that is the case. But I, I think in my own life, perhaps I was a frustrated adolescent, and I wanted something else. I wanted some adventure. And so when I finished my athletic career, I just went on the road. And Latin America was a, a place which was still is just so it's just a world apart from New Zealand, because in New Zealand we're very monolingual, just English. And so we don't even know, and, and we have, as, as in Canada, so much uh, media and radio, well, t television, everything from, from the United States. So we hardly know what's going on in Latin America. So it's this kind of this unknown place. So it's not even, you don't even get like a huge swath of Australian shows that flood your, your televisions, or, we, or is we, it really we, American? No, we get, we get more... British and Australian shows, but um, basically we the outside of the English world. I mean, because here in the United States, people are just much more aware of Latin America, right? Because there are Spanish channels and there are all these Mexican restaurants and whatever it may be. We don't have any of that in New Zealand. So basically, and this is what this book I've been reading discusses: the way that it's changing now because more Latin Americans is more of a di diaspora, and particularly in the United States and Canada. But outside of that. It's almost as though no one even knows Latin America is – anything's going on there. Anyway, so there were lots of, you could say, in, instances that led me to go and explore Latin America and, and they've led me to go back. I think perhaps because I grew up also so in, in a very rural area of New Zealand in a different – it's almost like a, a, a piece of the past. There were some elements in Colombia or Latin America that – reminded me of home in a way that in the cities or you could say modern New Zealand don't exist anymore. And that also points me to another article on your website, panampost.com. Why are migrants flocking? Or where are migrants <laughs> flocking to? <laughs> flocking to in South America. Wow, that title's a little weirder than I thought it was. <laughs> and you have a very good map here just showing, you know, which countries have basically grown in mm. immigration, immigrant populations throughout the last few years. That's uh, very interesting. This is by your reporter, Mabel Velastuegui? Velastuegui? Velastuegui. Oh, yeah. wow. you got to think it more. So uh, I, I think it's very interesting that you use uh, your use of the, the term diaspora because I remember in Tampa, when I mm. lived there and as a reporter, there were probably once a month these celebrations in the park, and it was sort of like a Latin American festival and there'd be a guy on the stage. This is all in Spanish. And I, I would go a few times just to get some free food. <laughs> they had a, it's a, an MC all in Spanish, and he right. would say, 
Sí, ahorra, Venezuela. And there'd be all the Venezuelans who hold up their flag and they're cheering. And then they have a beauty contest with the mm. Venezuelan would come by, the Colombian and the uh, the woman from Ecuador. And they just had like this this whole, you know, interesting international fair mm. happening in Tampa, Florida. And I thought that was just so amazing to see that. And it is true that there's this cultural mix that obviously in Florida, that's that's very present. And even in southern states, such as North Carolina now, it really is on the up and up. I mean, oh, yeah. It freaks a lot of people out. And that's <laughs> a lot of people who are the nativist white culture who really do not want to see any type of change or are scared by somebody who looks different from them or speaks a different language. I mean, it, it really terrifies them. Of course, for us, it's awesome. We're like having a party. Yeah, well, I, I think like you, though, Yale, I was the son of an immigrant as well. So I guess I just there was just always part of my life that I never really thought much about. I, I guess I didn't have a question about foreigners because my mother was a foreigner. And Canada is you know, more similar to uh, New Zealand than, say, Latin American countries are to Canada. But still, I think we, we both share that... that background where we've dealt with this and so we're much more sympathetic to people who've been through the same challenges you know i was talking to a, a guy in a starbucks who randomly came up to me because i was telling my girlfriend melanie about ahmadinejad's speech to the un a few years ago mm. and i was just talking about translations of different cultures and talking about oh you know well why did people attack the united states on september the 11th and obviously for people who are the nativist white culture it's because the muslims are out to get us and they hate our culture and that's effectively what this guy was arguing with me. And the way that he kept presenting his arguments is that, and this is going on while there are Muslim women in this uh, Starbucks who are wearing the hijab, they're doing their own thing, they're peaceful. <laughs> and he's like, you got these Muslims coming in here. They got a different culture. They got a different way of viewing the world. I'm not comfortable with that. Mm. And I told him blankly, I said, look, you might think that, but your type, you're dying off. Our generation is, I believe, a post-nationalist generation. And I know that's very paradoxical for me to even say, because just this week and in the weeks prior, I wrote an article for your site about mm. Quebec nationalism and why it's something that I think it's kind of interesting. I like the idea of, of separation and independence, but at the same time, if we look at it on a more global scale, I don't think people are, are thinking in terms of us versus them as much I think there are reasons why people should secede, but I don't think it should necessarily be because we're not like them. That's a great uh, point, actually, Yale, because there are different reasons for seceding. And uh, one state which is close to that or, you know, it comes up all the time is Puerto Rico, which is another state we've been following, or not a state, a territory we've been following closely. And the specialist on Puerto Rico was just saying that he doesn't really support independence right now because the people who are leading the independence movement are a bunch of Marxists who celebrate Fidel Castro. And I'm going, are you crazy? But apparently they are. And so it, it just depends what your goal is. So, for example, if you don't want to be involved with the U.S. federal government, I say, yeah, I don't blame you. You know, I, I would be quite I, – I would be supportive of someone basically breaking the ties – or even in Quebec's case, breaking the ties with o Ottawa. But it depends. You know, actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Puerto Rico because our, our good friend and my former colleague, Marinela Toledo, mm. uh, Watchdog.org, just put up a great article about Puerto Ricans who are 
trying to weather the economic crisis by moving to Florida. <laughs> yes. Uh, good article about that. And, and I think it's a question that's not really talked about. Like People don't realize that the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico did vote to become a U.S. state. Am I wrong in that? They did, but the way the question was worded was complicated. And uh, it maybe, yeah. uh, but I, and I agree with you. And this, it was the same thing with the Quebec referendum. It, mm. It's basically a paragraph long thing. You know, do you want to break up with Canada, but still kind of like keep the same phone number and like keep your records over there in their apartment? And you right. know, it's obviously there's still a lot of of connections. But I don't, I, I still don't understand why this isn't a bigger topic. I think it's cool. I think the idea of adding a new state. You know, while I'm not for expanding the the government and the federal government, I just think it's interesting. I think it's it shakes up people's perceptions of what a country or a nation is, and I like that. Yeah, well, my guess is though half of people in the in the United States, and I know this is maybe a, a flippant remark, but don't even know that Puerto Rico is part of the United States. So to try and bring that to the forefront of discussion, or actually to make any change, I think is going to be an uphill battle. And because of the cultural differences, because Puerto Rico does have a Latin American legacy, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. The only and, – and one thing that means – well, already Puerto Rico is a very dire state. There's uh, horrible uh, rates of crime. The nation is indebted. Uh, it's, it's poorer than Mississippi. And still, it doesn't seem to get any attention. So um, – the only thing that might get it attention is if it actually defaults or if it goes into bankruptcy similar to Detroit, which could happen. Uh, so that almost could be a blessing in disguise if that were to mean that that would lead to either independence or statehood or some sort of more urgent action on the matter. Yeah, that's true. Well, it is always kind of bad that we see how the best ideas can only flourish and spring up after all the bad ideas are crashed, I know, I know. which I guess, I guess is a good evolution. <laughs> I don't know. It seems, you know, the, it seems like, yeah, the times of crisis are ones which are oppo- give opportunities. I mean, that's, uh, yeah. that's Schumpeter's central theme and central argument, and I guess if we're going to have to live through that, you know, I'd rather it be done as quickly as possible to be able to live in the time where there is innovation and growth and prosperity. I mean, I think for us as a generation, and, you know, we're pretty much the same age, I would say that it's very scary for a lot of people out there, and it's even harder when you try to posit the idea that, immigration for a lot of people is just tied to people coming in and taking your jobs mm. whereas you and you and I know both that it's not about that at all it's about people completely changing their lives completely changing their familiar culture to go and and basically try to add themselves onto the economy somewhere else i mean people assume that immigrants are like some huge vacuum cleaner sucking away resources when in fact i mean these people have to go to taco bell they have to go to walmart they have to get their car washed, and they have to do everything. They have to do everything that we have to do. So if anything, they're always going to be a net benefit. Yeah, well, you know, recently, well, actually in the article you just mentioned there about where people are flocking to, we note that immigrate, the, the number of people, the proportion of people living as immigrants is as high as has ever been recorded, uh, which is, I think, 3.2%, which to me is not a heck of a lot, actually. But it just goes to show that the vast majority of people are not immigrants, and so you at least until that changes, you're going to have a hard time conveying the story or the message. Mm-hmm. Now, where there, where there are instances of open borders, such as between the states, it's much more understood. People relate to you moving to a different state, and it's sort of being just a part of natural behavior. 
But so long as we do have closed borders and we have such a small proportion of people moving across, uh, we're going to suffer from a lack of understanding or knowledge. And I think about this all the time, Yao. You know this because I read all the stories on people dying crossing the border, the lives of people who are living in the United States who are illegal, and often wonder, how can we get to a point where people just say, enough, enough wasting our time, energy, or efforts blocking people? But like I said, I just don't, I don't really know how to convey that. And I see that it is an uphill battle. And whenever I write an article on immigration, as soon as I say illegal immigrant, I get way more traffic. So people... Yeah, I've, I've seen that you've used that a lot more on your site. <laughs> I was confused by that. Yeah, because I, well, you know that I personally can't stand politically correct or political correctness. And I have no problem saying someone is an, is an illegal immigrant. I don't, and... I have no problem saying that I've been in countries without visas before and I really am not ashamed of it. So I don't see how changing the word is going to help the situation. It seems like a, a wasted effort. And so in that instance, I've kind of not, I've reluctant, well, how can, I've resisted the political correct change to undocumented or unauthorized. And I just call it what I see it as and not that I see it as wrong. So you see the term illegal and you just embrace it, you think? Yeah, no, I did. I'm who like, cares? Yeah, so I'm so illegal or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm, what does it matter to me? So Yeah, you're not illegal, you're illegal. <laughs> Sorry. No problem there. <laughs> yeah, and so, but but it just, it just was funny that, I, I don't mind sharing this, that everyone knows that I'm a big fan of open borders, and yet that article, even though it was just very, other than that word, the first two-thirds of the article was just all the advocates for no more deportations speaking. And at the bottom, I had one or two paragraphs from a, from a critic of immigrants. And yet, just saying the term illegal immigrants in the title meant that the majority of my traffic was from people who are anti-immigrants. Yeah. I, I no, could hardly that's, believe that's it. Always, I mean, that's a, a brilliant marketing strategy. I'm, gu- I'm guessing they just read the headline and looked at the picture and then started commenting, to be honest. To be honest, I wish there was some type of study, and I think I read one. People only read the first paragraph, and they don't read anything else. And it's the same just with the last article that I wrote for your site. That mm. Somebody was uh, commenting somewhere on Facebook. It's like, well, he doesn't even – he gets this wrong. It's like, well, dude, I talked about that. You just got to go to the third paragraph, not just look at the first. No, you know, it's, 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 it's even worse than that. I remember years ago – well, maybe two years ago now, I wrote an article about the, quote, myth of uh, tax flight, and I was kind of mocking how – People, people say that tax flight is a myth. They say that people leaving because the taxes are too high is a myth, even though everyone's leaving California, for example. They said it's a myth, and I, so I said the myth in quote, and I was mocking it, but someone attacked me saying that I'm an idiot because I believe in, believe in tax flight. I don't, I don't, you are I, an idiot. How, how dare you believe this? Yeah, and I was just going, you could have read the first sentence, and it, because I actually I had it in speech marks, but it just didn't come up on Facebook, right? P- Facebook did not pick up the speech marks, so it looked like, the, it looked like I was saying the myth of tax flight. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> oh, and I was just going, whoa. People just respond so quickly, and I was astounded. that Obviously, they didn't listen to my arguments, I mean, yeah, pe- people are used to, I guess, now reading BuzzFeed. I mean, that, that's that's they're looking for, yeah. you know, the little moving picture cartoon show that they got on there, and yeah, they're not going to read. Come on, that's an ongoing challenge, mate. I mean, even I get on BuzzFeed. It seems it's almost hard not to bump into it if you're on the only in the online world. It's fifteen. You can do that, but people are not going to read it that much. 
mm. unfortunately. And it, I mean, that's where obviously as journalists, we're 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 proud of that when we write a big piece and we we're able to weave in so many good things. And even after writing fifteen hundred words, we feel like we've left so much out. But you can't lose your audience. Mm. It's an ongoing challenge, Yale, and I'm I'm very conscious of it. You know, I read our metrics all the time, and I I realize that. To be a person, you know, the basic principle of marketing is that you give customers what they want. You don't tell them what they want. And I recognize, for example, that if I'm going to write articles about Canada, talking about low taxes or freedom from health care is probably not, not the way to go. And civil liberties, uh, people, people are much more sympathetic to that. Okay, okay. Yeah. What else should, uh, should we cover then in Canada? What, what else... I guess should be I from a marketing you, perspective. You just know that basically <clears throat> people are much more, you could, you could say, concerned with civil liberties, non-interventionism, and uh, I don't want to, maybe gay rights is, is the way to put it. I'm not sure, but basically these minority rights, that there's just a different conversation going on up in Canada. And I know because I go on the Canadian uh, Reddit thread and... Yeah, it's uh, it's very enlightening to see how different the audience is. And so, for example, when I was first promoting the Stateless Man, my radio show, I would uh, I bought a little bit of advertising, and I would uh, put some to Canada and some to the United States. And for whatever reason, people in the United States just were much more likely to like my show than in Canada. Like the Stateless Man concept was just not such a popular concept up there. No. No, and that's why I did like also the the article on the Freeman movement, which I I found very interesting. I, yeah, I think I think we I don't know if we talked about this clip on the last show that we did together, or we just mm. talked about it. But there's the guy in Calgary, I think, who is a Freeman, and this dude is like so open that he just did a new uh, an interview with the news station, and he's like, "Yeah, I got three businesses, don't pay taxes, don't even have a license." <laughs> And this guy, and the way they made it seem in the beginning is that he was like an anarchist cleaning oh, no. his guns and, yeah, yeah. and canned food. But then he's then they go to his house and he's watering plants. <laughs> that's his job, watering plants? No, no, no. I mean, he owns construction companies oh. and he's a hard worker, but that's just kind of like his, that's what he does at home. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. It's this perception that, that people have, and I thought it was, it was really interesting for that. It's, it's just, it is a fascinating movement because they want to, the, the, I mean, there are some bad apples, obviously, I'm sure you've So, I guess, the Freeman, if, how would you define that? That's the sovereign citizen movement? Yeah, sovereign citizen. Or in, in, the, in Canada, they call themselves Freeman on the land. In, and in the U.S., yeah, sovereign citizens or state nationals. And in New Zealand, they have them, but I don't know what they call themselves in New Zealand. I've met a few. I can't remember what, what the term was. Just... Um, I don't. I don't know. The Three kiwis. They drove without licenses, just like the ones up in Canada, and didn't pay them, pay income taxes. That doesn't mean the IRS, the, the our equivalent to the IRS, the IID, wasn't after them. But uh, let me think. The basically the Freeman movement or Freeman on the land movement up in Canada, like the sovereign citizen movement in the United States, is attacking the premise of your obligation to obey. Uh, many uh, government regulations. So it's basically trying to opt out of a large degree of government. And they do this with the assumption, which I hate to say I don't think is actually correct. I mean, I wish it were correct that that you can do that and get away with it. 
uh, and that there's some lawful recourse. Uh, my own sense, and from studying this, is that basically that's not the case. That even if even if it is the case that there is some recourse, that the laws were written in such a way that you can get out of them, the will of people in p- political power to accept that is simply not there, and they will force you in line regardless of what the actual law says. So yeah, and I, the article that we're talking about is the fight for self ownership in Canada, also on Pan Am Post. I'll put that in mm. the uh, show notes, libertyinexile dot com. The article by Ryan Hildebrand. Is that right. correct? Yes, he's he's a uh, commentator based out of uh, Louisiana, and he is an anarcho libertarian or anarcho capitalist, and he's v- very interested in movements like these because they shine light on the basic legitimacy of government to do so much of what it's doing, and. I feel I'm very sympathetic to what these people are concerned about. Uh, the the example I give for Canada is that even to have a job, uh, how can I, a, a job um, agency, an employment agency, you need to have a license. And I just thought, if you have to have a license to have a, an employment agency, I guess every single business has to have some kind of license because that seems the mo- like the most um, gentle business possible or non-threatening business around. Yeah, anyway. Of so he, we, we address that topic because my concern is that most people in media outlets have, don't have a clue about the actual motivations of uh, Freeman on the land, and they just see them as kind of these scary radicals, you know, dangerous. And so I saw there was qu- quite a bit of coverage in Canadian outlets from, I think, the National Post and then a few others maybe reposted that article. And then another, another uh, counter-article. So I just thought I wanted to give a more balanced perspective, and Ryan was up to the task. I'm really glad what he put together, pleased with what he put together. Uh, but like I said, even if, even if the Freeman on the Land movement raises good or important questions, I just think the, the fundamental premise, the assumption that you can get away with this and it's going to make you freer, that is wrong, and I can give more examples to back yeah. that up, actually. And I, the one, one part I really liked about the article is, and I don't think he expounded on this too much, but he talks about how the Freeman used legal language and sort of used the own rules of the state I know. to show them that they're wrong. And mm. I, on the face of it, people think that it's like, well, you can't do that. And I will say that I actually have done this on my own. I haven't, you know, again... I haven't You've, said that I, I don't have to pay taxes or right. drive without a license. But this more had to do when I got a ticket in Pennsylvania, you mm-hmm. know, as a North Carolina license uh, holder, and also my car was from North Carolina. And I got a ticket saying that I was not uh, following the regulations of Pennsylvania as far as car regulations were concerned. Mm. And I, the law just did not apply to me. And I made that argument, and it took me a few months, but eventually it got thrown out. And it was a, a tiny mini victory for me, but it just shows that people, if they're willing to stick it out, then they can defeat the state. But again, it yeah. takes a lot of perseverance. And it, it, Exactly. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it's a trade-off, right? So in that instance, you've got to say, how much is my time worth relative to the fine that's applicable, right? And I'll just say, for example, that if you think that you can make a good living – and, and not pay your income tax, I just think you're, you're fooling yourself. Uh, so basically, the people who do this predominantly are very poor. They just, they just work on cash or barter or whatever. So it's very hard to really attack them anyway, so it doesn't, doesn't really make a difference. But if you want to be a successful person who travels the world and enjoys a higher standard of living, uh, there's just very little way to get around that. 
And that, that was the basic the bottom line to me. That Back in New Zealand, I, I interacted with a bunch of these... I, yeah, again, I don't know what they, what they call themselves in New Zealand, but basically freemen on the land equivalents using the same sort of common law redress or whatever, whatever you want to call it. They were not happy people. You know, they were not free people, definitely not freer than me. And I just thought that all, for all their talk, they, you know, they weren't living the sort of happy life that, that you and I would want. So, for example, they would, they would be concealing their identities in their email or in their business They'll be using fake names. I'm going, I don't really feel like using a fake name. And, um, yeah. and I, I also know a, a family in Vermont who were doing this. That, I mean, they still don't have social security numbers, actually. They still live like that and don't, don't use licenses. But basically... When yeah, but then you, then you can't even apply for a passport. You can't even really leave the country. You, you can. There are ways to do it, actually. Uh, I, I know someone personally who actually does have a passport without any kind of driver's license and even without a birth certificate I think uh, I don't know the, it took him a lot of work to, to arrange it because you don't act, you, there's no legal requirement to get a birth certificate uh, and he just had to use other routes but it's just very difficult and the, but the, what happened with this family that I, that I know is that basically the local municipality confiscated their their home their uh, their property wow so that like that was the end of the road and the deal is too now that almost all companies in including Pan Am, you know, we want to see documentation when you, when you interact with us, right? Unless you're not living in the United States. And that, ju- that just put, that just means that you're going to, if you're going to try and live outside of that system, the number of vendors who be willing to interact with you is getting uh, lower and lower. Yeah, definitely. No, I, I can understand that. And that is again, like you were saying, the trade off. And the question that I would ask, however, is do you view that there's a shift with and I'm going to get sort of meta here. The, the mm. way that technology is shifting and the way that we're able to produce work, because technically, Pan Am Post, you can be based anywhere in the Pan Americas. You can be in Alaska or you can be in uh, Chile or Buenos mm. Aires, wherever you want to be. So because we're able to do that, especially as a generation, but particularly as writers, mm. What kind of opportunities do you think are available to us to be able to travel or to live or, or just what kind of freedom do you think we'll be able to enjoy that other people might not get to? That's, that's a good question. I, I ponder that all the time because I've tried to work as I've traveled at the same time. It has not been so successful that uh, – mean, so, for example, when I was working on building the Pan Am, I was in Colombia for, the, for a couple of months and, well – getting a reliable internet connection for example was a mission and then electricity would be going out all the time or whatever it may be there were hassles so it may be true if you if you have let's say an, a job or a role where you can just work four hours a day or something like that fine i would say you travel as you as you wish but i'm just i guess i'm becoming maybe a bit more uh skeptical of, of being able to pull that off about just just working on the road unless you, you're making money from passive passive income yeah, but I mean, it's an ongoing question: how most money will be made in the future? Because I hope a lot of the sort of boring bureaucracy that requires a st- like a a, um, a more permanent presence is just just goes by the wayside, uh, so we can more easily travel. And I think too, as, as technology advances, let's say that let's let's say that in Colombia there were uh, better infrastructure and 
better internet connections and I could just know that if I were to go there for two weeks that I, I wouldn't have a problem with anything like that. Well, obviously I could work more easily, but most of the world is not, does not like that, that you, you face challenges almost everywhere you go. Well, from what I read, uh, Jeff Berwick says Chile is uh, the next uh, utopia, 21st century technology everywhere. Everyone's happy and, and <laughs> having a fun time. And everyone has Wi-Fi just plugged into their hand. Yeah, it, se yeah. it seems amazing out there, and I really should invest. No, man, that's the, that's, <laughs> that's the problem with this is the this is the problem with the whole expatriation realm. And I I really I hope that people know when they listen to my show when they hear me talk that I'm saying what I really believe that I'm not trying to trick you into buying things. And so many people want to promote how wonderful it is in let's say Mexico or Chile or whatever or New Zealand I just give people caution to think about that to think about is this person making money out of me believing such an idea and if they are you know they have there's obviously a perverse incentive involved to overplay the benefits and it's true that Chile is much more developed than many other countries in Latin America but that doesn't mean that once you get out of Santiago that you're going to not face problems. So, uh, yeah, so... Uh, yeah, no, the, no, I, I understand that yeah. point. And I think for a lot of people who stay at home 9 to 5, I guess that that's sort of the comparison that I'm trying to draw here in that mm. a lot of the people that I definitely went to school with or was friends with initially, well, most of them are working for the government now because that's... Mm. We're in a new Great Depression, and that's all that people can do. That is depressing. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it is. I mean, <laughs> if you if you walk to the Walmart, and you'll see that mm. mac and cheese is on sale, and you'll see that you know this is what people are buying, and this is what people need. I mean, it is a depression, and there are all these articles going on about unpaid internships. There's a good one that was uh, floating around. Mm. I mean, it, we're just in a, a bad time, and I guess... When we're in a bad time like this, people like, for example, you and me, we, we see that as an opportunity. We're trying to become entrepreneurial. We're trying to put our heads together and really think outside of the box, whereas most people say, okay, well, now's the time to clamp down. I got to probably uh, start, I don't know, apply to be in the military and I can get a job here or I'll, I'll go work at the mm -hmm. post office or, or wherever and they go to a nine-to-five job or a corporate schlacky messing with a Twitter account. The way that I see it is that I think the opportunities that we have and the technology that we have allows it to where we can travel and it not cost, you know, three months salary. We can travel and be able to, to meet people and stay with people we know and not have to spend and fork over every single dime. Yeah. And I think that that's very beneficial to not only new businesses popping up, but new brand of news, for example, or a new way of viewing the world instead of staying in a cubicle you know, nine to five and, and trying to churn things out. Yeah, there are a couple of things I want to respond with there. Even though I'm, I'm saying I've been, I was skeptical of traveling and working at the same time, I think I should put that into context because the problem is pe people might think that I think uh, uh, you could say changing places and working in different locations is a bad idea. Of course, I don't think that. I guess I was comparing it to people or thinking people who are permanent tourists or permanent nomads and... I guess I've just found that lifestyle difficult, and I'm I'm often often question whether that is a smart way to go, both emotionally, financially, whatever whatever it may be. I think it's a, it's a challenging way to go, and people do pull it off. Uh, but in terms of this sort of batting down the hatches or um, sort of looking for stability as opposed to 
uh, being more adventurous in this time, that does concern me greatly because one of the out- ways in which the United States is distinct uh, from other countries and why perhaps why I'm here is that there's much more respect given to uh, being an entrepreneur. Now, by comparison, when I lived in Nova Scotia, people looked upon public officials as their role models. Uh, that's not, they do, still do that here as well, but not to such a degree. And not only did peop- do people in the United States <clears throat> look upon um, businessmen or entrepreneurs in a more positive light, they're much more, I think, tolerant of people giving it a go and failing in the business realm and you know, picking themselves back up again. And just one analogy makes this clear uh, from uh, someone I know. He was saying that one of, the, one of the popular shows, I guess it was last decade now, was this Apprentice with um, Donald Trump, right? And at the end of each show, he'd say, you're fired, you know, to some person. <laughs> and that was really popular. And, you know, it wasn't popular back in New Zealand or anywhere else, really, but in, uh, in the U.S. it was. And this person who was observing, he just said that he's from Venezuela. He said that you could not air a show like that in Venezuela. You could not air a show that says publicly in someone's face, you're fired in such a kind of aggressive fashion. And I Why? Think, they, they go commit suicide? Is that... No, be, be, no, no because... well, The shame, maybe. Because... I don't, I'm not really sure why. I mean, because obviously I don't feel bad about it. I'm just saying that that's just the case. So, you know, for example, that in places like uh, Sweden, once someone's been working for, I think, six months or, or more, you cannot fire them unless they've, I don't know, slept with the boss or something like that. And so basically, firing someone is illegal. Yeah, same in France and in Germany and in Austria, it's pretty much the same way. Yeah, so the question is, I mean, to me, I, I mean, that just seems so crazy. I, I mean, I just cannot get it. But the concern I have is that the culture of, a, of respect for free enterprise or entrepreneurship and then with that, a tolerance for, of failure, you could say, of, of attempt and failure, including firing people or kind of like cleansing of the system, which is just a natural part of, you could say, the, the free enterprise system where you have competitors. I'm concerned that this long-term depression of the United States which is basically putting a, a spotlight on, quote, these like victims of unpaid internships and forcing more people, or not forcing, but heightening the incentives to go and get a government job is changing that culture. I really don't like that. And uh, I hope it, you know, I, I want to see this respect for, the, for entrepreneurship to remain here. And what you, and like, you know, like you just mentioned, you and I, we're, we're, we're happy in this new environment. We, you know, this sort of more um, this this environment of change just suits our needs better. Like, we, like I'm just eager for it. I think there are just so many more holes in the market for us to take advantage of, and I don't know why the people don't see that, but for whatever reason they don't. And I'm also I even though pe- people say they can't find jobs, I guess I'm very skeptical of that, and I'm, I'm guessing you are too because I'm not even from the United States, right? And I don't I don't have a graduate degree, right? So. But still, I can find jobs no problem. And I just don't understand why people don't get off their butts and make it happen. I, I, basically, I, think, I think really at the core of it, and it's the same uh, sort of theme that underlies the unpaid internship people who want to try to sue mm. their former employers, and it has to do with this sense of entitlement. 
Yeah, it, I'm not sure what it is. I'm just saying that people sometimes complain to me about difficult situations here, and I just, I just almost look at them shocked. I'm just thinking, uh, why don't you try living in Ghana? Or, you know, go and... <laughs> <laughs> you know, why don't you go somewhere where people are making 300 bucks a month? Or go to Cuba, we're making 20 bucks a month. You know... Yeah, Myanmar, 200 a year. <laughs> sure. I, I, just, I just have a hard time processing people who want to complain about that. And maybe I complain sometimes too, but I just re- recognize that I'm a heck of a lot better off than any of my ancestors. And I've got a wonderful life, uh, relatively speaking. And it's true that we face challenges, but the resilience that people from poorer parts of the world show puts us to shame on many occasions. Yeah, but again, because people don't travel and because they don't often have news from the outside, they can't ever really know that. And I think that's one reason why Pan Am Post should be very popular, especially among younger people, but also older people, people who are stuck to their newspapers and only see the ads with smiling people when happy things happen abroad. And really, we have to try to put things into perspective. I mean, we... We, we in the United States sometimes, or even in Canada, there'll be floods or small tornadoes, and maybe ten people will die. Well, something like that in Pakistan happens, and literally six thousand people are wiped out or just gone from the earth. I mean, there's no equivalency there, and people would like to prop up the you know the white American USA. Oh, I feel so much worse for them, but I mean, this kind of stuff happens all the time, and I think we don't really have the especially people who haven't traveled, they just have no way to cope with that. Right. And, and also at the same time, as you know too, Yale, people who want to complain about a lack of opportunity are so often the, the, the first people to go and bash capitalists or entrepreneurs who would actually give them opportunities. And I guess I say, that's where I say, you know, don't cry for me, Argentina. I just don't, I don't, have, the, I don't have the bleeding heart because I just say, look, I, I really appreciate entrepreneurs and business people coming and working with me, and I want more of them. And it just it recently, I came across a website which kind of broke my heart in this regard. There's this group called the Young Invincibles. And if people don't know that term, it refers to people who are our, our generation or our demographic, you know, like 20 to 30 or whatever, who choose to go without medical insurance or who are young and don't need it because they're in good health or good shape. And this Young Invincibles, contrary to what you might think of people who are promoting that lifestyle, no, 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 they are promoting the, quote, Affordable Care Act. And I just thought how – and they were celebrating the fact that now you can stay on your um, parents' – Oh, this is disgusting. Until you are – it's 26 or something? I don't really know. I just think – Yeah, it's 26, but this site is disgusting. I'm on it right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was just thinking, where is your pride? I just don't – I don't get it. And I'm thinking, how can you be celebrating that you're, f- you're forcing these employers who are probably already going broke trying to keep your parents happy you know, and, and pay them enough, you force them to cover, I-, I forget what actual medical insurance comes to these days, but I'm guessing maybe like $5,000 a year or something ridiculous. And I know that when I was working, it cost me like 400 bucks a month for the employer and I rejected that. I wanted to get the cash instead. But I'm just saying that to, to sort of celebrate this on the one hand, and on the one hand, be expecting jobs. I'm going, you're like, don't you get the connection? <laughs> wow. I'm going to look into this outfit. I don't know who made, who, who started this up. Man, I don't this know. Is... Just someone on Twitter was mentioning it, and I just said, oh, man, I guess. I, I, I didn't realize what it was. What it was. I, just, I just heard the term young invincibles, and I was going, all right, I'll check out the site. And then it was just not <laughs> what I expected. 
This is disgusting. All these people are like policy. All these people, again, had to study political science. Way to (laughs) make everything that I studied seem terrible. And they want to go and and get the government to force everybody to do what they want. Yeah. And like I said, I I just – it's it's almost like there's a different conversation going on between people who really want that self-sufficiency or independence and people who have just forgotten that, don't know what that's all about. And really don't know the meaning behind words. I, I think that's why I carry on. Uh, I guess for some reason I'm following George Orwell's ghost, uh, going to Burma. Yes. And uh, <laughs> where else did I go? Burma, and he was also in... Catalonia. He went to Catalonia. In Catalonia, yeah. I, I started reading that. Man, I tell you, people do not understand what words mean. Like, healthcare is not healthcare. I mean, my mom fell down and hurt her arm two weeks ago. She's had to go and, and get three different casts. Because it's 600 bucks a pop and because uh, the doctor was concerned that the cast might rot. I mean, these incentives that are created in the healthcare industry are not talked about enough. And these kind of testing that they make people do that's, you know, preventive to a key and they're using all these extremely expensive machines. This is not what healthcare was even 30 years ago. Hmm. So if we really think the government or even us, we're going to be able to pay for giving everybody all these tests all the time, I mean, it's impossible. You can't do it. Yeah, back in college, actually, I took a course in healthcare economics, or, yeah, they called it healthcare economics. And it is, it is true that there's almost, there's just a, you could say, a gross misunderstanding of what is going on in medical care. And I think, uh, for whatever reason, the actual causes for why medical care is so expensive in the U.S., such as the the tax deduction or tax write-off for um, benefits through employers, that basic problem from dating back to the Great Great Depression in the 1930s, nobody wants to touch that. Yeah, well, because people see that as a a product of capitalism. That's a a product of capitalism? You mean touching that? I don't understand. No, they say that because it's handled by the employer's that oh. somehow has to do with – I mean that is the argument. And I uh, believe me, I walk into my house and MSNBC is playing all day long, so okay, I hear okay. this stuff. <laughs> but it's, it's going on and you know, I, I, people yeah. who know nothing about healthcare or nothing about politics are like, yeah, Obamacare is going to cover this and that. Like, what, what, why don't employers cover your car insurance? You know? I mean – I would be great. Yeah, you need a car to go to work. You, 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 what about housing insurance? I'm like, why don't they just buy everything for you? You know, what I mean, you need, yeah, you got to have clean white teeth to sell products. So dentist as well. So, I, but that underlying problem of the tax manipulation of the medical market to align everyone to one buying insurance from through an employer and then to pooling it together with other people just distorts everything basically. And it creates all these perverse incentives to over to overconsume. So the U.S. people will always say, "Well, you consume so much medical care." I'm going, no surprise. So, uh, <laughs> but basically, so that that underlying or fundamental flaw just is, is stuck. And until people you know accept that as a problem and say, "Actually, why don't we just buy medical care on our own?" Uh, I think we're going to be uh, struggling. I mean, there are lots of other side issues, such as why can't we buy drugs from other countries, or why can't other doctors come here, or why can't we open up a hospital without a ten-year compliance, you know, process or whatever. I mean, those are all problems too. But there's that that fundamental one, like I mentioned, I think is is key to kind of unraveling yeah. all those things. It, it seems simpler just to say, well, okay, we'll just make the government pay for it, therefore it's okay. Well, because it, it basically takes it out of the hands of consumers. That you just have it. Yeah. If you have an employer. Well, the, the decision-making is so much more concentrated, 
and each of us, we, we don't even really deal with it. We, we just have someone else basically dictating, well, these are your options. Choose one or two, or just maybe you've just got one option. And so, again, that, that creates a much less competitive or consumer-friendly market, and I just um, it makes it much more expensive too because once you, once you enter a pool with other people, the incentive to avoid going and, and paying for it up front is, is, is gone. So that's why I actually use, I'm, I don't mind saying I use major medical, which means I pay a very low amount, but I have a very high, if I, if I actually do have to use the hospital, I have to pay a very high amount, like $5,000 before the, the insurance kicks in. Mm-hmm. But that's fine because I don't have to. I don't. I don't need that. Um, if everyone would take a plan like mine, for example, the cost would just come down immediately. Yeah, and you're a healthy, strapping young man, and you can do it. By the way, this Young Invincibles logo—it is basically a white fist, and behind it is a blue hand. Oh, right. Blue democratic hand. It was like it, it's at the same one time they're extending the blue hand, but then there's a fist behind it. and It's going to punch you in the face. Well, what made it funny was that just I think that maybe the day before I read that satirical article about how Tea Party people are ridiculous and why don't they get behind uh, the Affordable Care Act. Did you read that one? Was that on The Onion? No. No, no, just some independent person wrote an article basically. Oh, is that the one that you, I thought this guy was a a conservative dude trying to lampoon backwards. Is that the one that you linked to? I linked to it. It's called Right-Wing Obamacare Myths, all capitals, debunked. And oh, basically, okay. I thought that guy was smarter. Never mind. <laughs> no. Basically, it was just it's just a joke where he's, he's kind of playing out the way that people mock opponents of uh, the Affordable Care Act. And so I just read this article, which is hilarious, and it says, well, there are no new taxes except, well, maybe 20 new taxes, and employers are not going to fire people except maybe, like, all these companies, and there aren't going to be exceptions except maybe all these exceptions, and just kind of mocking um, mocking the defendants of Obamacare while, while being one. It was just very, very witty, and I, I really appreciate people who can, who can write like that. And, okay. but, so I, so yeah. I, ju- I just read that, and then I went to this Young Invincible site, and I was going, What? So, so, I was going, I guess we live in different realms of information, and uh, I was just kind of struck by that. Yeah, this guy, actually, uh, I think it's the Matt Walsh blog. I started reading that a little bit, and he kind of, all his articles are kind of like that. And that, that, that is a different level of wit and especially satire that is probably hard for a lot of people to get. And irony. You know, the, uh, what, the generation what, of irony. Yeah, what amazed me is some of the older folks were, going, were attacking him because they thought he was actually attacking Tea Partyers. I was going, you, you can't see that that's, that that's sarcasm? I was just shocked. but Because uh, they only read the first paragraph. Prob- probably, yeah, I guess. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, Fergus, I, I don't want to end on a good, a bad note. You've uh, presented us with a brand new media outlet. Of course, I, I have to stipulate that I myself do write for the outlet, and I'm a, gl- a glad columnist contributor. And I join a, a large array of uh, writers, bloggers, uh, opinion columnists from all over the Americas. And I'm very, very happy to be a part of the project. And I, I think for everybody who is waiting for some good amount of news and analysis, this is the perfect site, panampost.com. Uh, so, Fergus, I, I thank you so much. No, it's, it's my pleasure. And I want to say, yeah, Yale's uh, column is called Question the Narrative. It's a great one, and he has it both in uh, English and French. So, yeah, just go to panandpost.com and you can look up, uh, well, 
we'll have to post a link to your particular series, or you'll have to post one in your in your show uh, uh, recap. Yeah, of course. I'll, I'll get everything together. And again, the show notes will be libertyinexile.com. That was Fergus Hodgson. Thank you very much. And to the rest, au revoir et bonne chance. Actors. Libertynexile.com